Hello and thanks for listening in to Welcome to Antifascism, a Substack podcast and blog that examines why liberal nations and people were seduced by fascist ideas and movements over the last decade. We are your hosts, Alastair Cannon and Nick Purdy, and this is episode three, where we start to look at the cultural, political, and psychic effects of the 20th century's most terrifying invention, the atomic bomb. Remember to subscribe on Spotify and on Substack, where you can read text versions of each episode before the audio is released. It is 5.28am on July 16th, 1945, 21 days before the first bomb will fall on Japan, three weeks before Karfried Graf Durkheim hides himself away in Kurosawa. It is six months before he dreams up his new mystical system in a Tokyo prison. In an isolated location in New Mexico's Jornada del Muerto Desert, less than a minute from now, American government officials will press a button and produce a defining moment for the 20th century spirit, the first ever atomic explosion. The Trinity test marked the first time that humanity detonated a nuclear weapon. Even with our species' genius for violence, never before had we condensed such destructive power into a single device. Not since we first thought of the gods had we created something with such potential for terror and dread, a force that could deform the dreams and hopes of people everywhere. The architects of the Trinity tests were physicists and engineers mostly, yet a few among them understood the religious, symbolic significance of their creation. And like Durkheim, some of them translated this terrifying event, this eruption of death, into a new kind of spirituality. Robert Oppenheimer, a man once sent to a psychiatric ward, after he tried to murder his university tutor in a cold, jealous rage, who eventually became the lead scientist on this project of mass destruction, famously thought of verses from the Bhagavad Gita as the fire seared the sky. If the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one, he thought. I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Oppenheimer saw how his bomb united power, ingenuity, and death in the greatest explosion ever seen. Engulfed by a sense of omnipotence and self-aware terror, he felt he had created a new kind of man-made god, a god of death, of annihilation, of disintegration. The apparatus used to conduct the test was also pregnant with symbolic meaning. The bomb was detonated atop a 100-foot-tall tower the scientists named Zero. The ground beneath the tower they named Ground Zero. After the bomb exploded in a refulgent flash, drenching the sky in light and purpling the clouds, both the tower and the ground were gone. With their bomb, the scientists erased zero and the ground beneath. Logically, 
symbolically, all that remained was groundlessness, an absence transcending absence. After the test, and because of the names, a void that meant less than nothing remained. The fire burned away nothingness and vaporized its foundation. Developing the bomb allowed America to defeat fascist Japan and end World War II. But their victory had a cost. For it meant that death and power finally triumphed. Destruction, and not virtue or life, became the organizing force of human existence. The threat of an annihilation to come would now shadow everything. And an age of groundlessness began to unfold out from ground zero, where pure positive force, instead of repressive negativity, became the defining feature of power. All that followed was a reaction to this groundlessness. The negation of negation. Our age, we will see, is one of eternal return to this traumatic moment that ended fascism, but which would eventually demand its repetition. The first place to be engulfed by the groundlessness that America was to unleash was Hiroshima in Japan. At 8.15am on August 6th, three weeks after the Trinity test, America detonated an atomic bomb in the Hiroshima sky. Fire filled the air. Everything vanished in the blinding light. For a moment, there was nothing. And then a ravaged land unlike anywhere on earth appeared as the brightness cleared. Reasons strategic, economic and geopolitical underwrote the strike. America needed to win the war, officials said. The nuclear strike would ensure this end. Critics nonetheless claimed they raised the city in their bid for post-war hegemony. A ruined country would need reconstruction. America could control Japan by financing its recovery. Others still argued that America wanted to terrify the Soviets with their dreadful show of omnipotence. It was an atrocity in any event. Hundreds of thousands were killed, wounded or condemned to die in a smattering of seconds, a flash of time. Three days later, America repeated the violence, levelling the city of Nagasaki with a second flash of light and heat. Like the Trinity tests, these atomic blasts were not only physically destructive, they were also a violence against the psyche, against the spirit. With a weapon born of 20th century physics, of material science's triumphs, America staged a vast human sacrifice with metaphysical ends. Traceless erasure and unimaginable desolation were the bomb's effects on bodies and on things. The blasts in Japan seared these ideas into the public imagination where they would soon gain a near-religious significance. Survivor testimonies and photography ensured that the aesthetic effects of the Hiroshima bomb were well known after that day. A noiseless flash first filled the sky. A sheet of sun was drawn over the city. 
A shooting star the size of hundreds of suns blazed through the air. Those subjected to the blast then experienced a moment of extreme contradiction and confusion. A character in Masuji Ibuse's 1965 novelization of the day, Black Rain, sees a ball of blindingly intense light when the bomb explodes. Simultaneously, they are plunged into total, unseeing darkness. One survivor in John Hersey's 1946 New Yorker article, Hiroshima, went out of his mind for a few seconds or minutes. Inexplicably, the man soon found himself wandering his garden in his underwear, the day darkening as the ash covered the sun. Bizarre things soon happened to the weather. Black rain fell from the sky in streaks the thickness of a fountain pen, staining the skin of the living and the dead. At the same time, a vast funnel of flame reached into the sky above the city, drawing up and devouring the pillars and beams of the houses before scattering them across the city. When people returned to their senses, they found their bodies and buildings transformed in terrible, strange ways. An account of the day is filled with images of skin burning, peeling, bleeding, and corpses torn and scattered across the land. Roads that were melted, buildings either vanished completely, combined strangely, or, more improbably, stood. One character in Black Rain observes a chunk of wall hanging in the air, suspended from a thick strand of metal reinforcement. Others see shops blasted out of existence and houses knocked flat, covering the ground with an undulating sea of tiles. The story's narrator, Shigematsu, notices that his neighbor's kitchen had been blown entirely into his bathroom. The very act of witnessing the blast deformed people too. Ibuse describes the baby's eyes clogged with ash, while a survivor interviewed by Hersey encountered a group of about 20 men whose faces, turned skyward when the bomb exploded, were all in the same nightmarish state. Their eye sockets were hollow. The fluid from their melted eyes had run down their cheeks. Like a writer who rips the paper he presses with his pen, the bomb's heat was so great that it burned away the medium on which it left an impression, the human eye. These blind men could only know the blast by the erasure, the eternal darkness the light delivered them to. Nearer the explosion's hypocenter, the blast occasionally left traces of the life it eradicated. Nuclear shadows darkened the light-bleached pavements in places where people once stood. Yet most of those close to the blast did not live on even as ashen spectres. They were erased from the world without a scar, mark, or trace that could testify to their life or its loss. Only pure absence, the erasure of erasure remained, with black rain falling from the sky. 
fire is in everything. Reality is made from what would disintegrate it. Groundlessness opens out from the heart of the world. Or in Heraclitus's words, for fire, everything is an exchange and fire for everything, just as for gold, money, and for money, gold. This was the metaphysical image of erasure and destruction given to the world when the bombs fell, when light consumed a city and heat turned people into nothingness. No matter one's religious beliefs, this image wrote itself indelibly into the 20th century imagination. For people everywhere, it became a kind of God, a vision, a profound meaning that deformed languages and dreams. In Black Rain, stricken people cry for help as the skies burn. The sounds that emerge in their nameless dread, though, are no intelligible human speech. Their words are made meaningless after the blast. Their babbling, their speech in tongues, reveals their conversion to a religion where meaning has no ground. Other broken characters wander past the desolate shrines of their city. The worship hall in front of the Yokogawa shrine had vanished, leaving only its clay foundation, a bare and ugly hump. Nothing was left of the Hakushima shrine, Abuse writes later, but its stone wall. Elsewhere, in Teramachi, the temple quarter, not a single temple was standing. All that remained was clay walls crumbled and collapsed till they were barely recognizable. The Honganji Temple, once famed as the greatest temple building in the whole quarter, had vanished without a trace. Hiroshima's desacralization was absolute. Ibuse's characters, their skin stained by the black rain, visit ornamental ponds blasted into pools of blackish mud to rinse themselves of the day's nothingness, to wipe away the vaporization of their faith. However many times they go to the ornamental spring to clean their bodies, though, the stains from the black rain wouldn't come off. They are forever inscribed with the black ink of nothingness that streaks down from the sky swirling with the ash of their people and city, that wrote Hiroshima's truth upon the bodies of those that survived. At the edge of being, yet threatening to swallow it whole, Hiroshima's black rain said there was nothingness, erasure, absence. A godlike force of white heat could wipe us out without a trace, marked forever with a memory of the light that could annihilate everything. The bombing redefined power in humanity's imagination. It changed our language, our religion. Afterwards, and anxiously babbling as we imagine wars that could never come, visions of force and heat, nothingness and desolation, all man-made, filled our dreams. Plagued by this terrible fantasy, the very thought of nuclear war, of Hiroshima's repetition, would soon start to change the world. 
As news of the bomb echoed soundlessly, endlessly around the world, its flash translated into the spectral light of TV imagery and the disembodied sound of radio speech, reiterated with words and ink on paper designed to decay, people did not know how to react. It took time for our new imaginary to develop. Perhaps this is because the bomb had blasted open a paradoxical place in our minds. The bomb's paradoxes were first perceived, perhaps, by one of the bomb's key designers, mathematical genius John von Neumann. Von Neumann worked for years on the bomb. He designed its mechanisms, he calculated likely death tolls, he advised the US on how they might deploy it for maximum destruction. Yet at the same time, he also published an important book, 1944's Theory of Games and Economic Behaviour, which helped establish the branch of mathematics he later used to explain why nuclear war would only end with mutually assured destruction. Von Neumann built the bomb and helped to deploy it in Japan. He also explained why nuclear war could not occur. He willingly contributed to the deaths of hundreds of thousands. He insisted the device he designed could never cause the harm that it threatened. Von Neumann's predictions have been vindicated so far. The Soviets developed their nuclear capability in 1949. The bombs have not been used in war since. Despite moments like the Cuban Missile Crisis and other nuclear close calls, the logic of mutually assured destruction has worked as von Neumann had predicted. Because we all had nukes, the nukes have not been launched. Creating the means for nuclear war has ultimately prevented it. John von Neumann's legacy is like his mind, a strange yet rational contradiction. After Hiroshima, he suggests, the only way to achieve peace was by creating the most credible and destructive threat imaginable. The only way to protect freedom and civilization was in an endless compulsory scramble towards violence, death and barbarism. The bomb started a race we believed we were forced to run, but whose destination we hoped we would never reach. An infinite pursuit and deferral of extinction and the abyss, it birthed the dream of annihilation, always coming, never arriving. A thought of the end of meaning that rewrote the meaning of life. Once created, the bomb became necessary and impossible all at once. Somehow it was both reality and a dream. A dream that had the strange power to remake reality. After Hiroshima, a force had entered the world that drove us towards terror and annihilation, while at the same time it infinitely and indefinitely postponed our destruction. Beneath our death to come, our nightmares of the blinding light that would end everything, our ideals were transmuted into their opposites. Living under von Neumann's logic of M.A.D., peace became total war. Life was preserved through the spectre of utter annihilation, the greatest death threat imaginable. Science was finally seen for what it was, a double-edged blade of progress and of destruction. Our grand desires for human enlightenment, liberty and peace 
were revealed as a route into death, extinction, and oblivion. Beneath the threat of mutually assured destruction, author Thomas Pynchon observed that atomic war quickly became the common nightmare of people everywhere. Except for that succession of the criminally insane who have enjoyed power since 1945, including the power to do something about it, he once wrote, most of us have been stuck with simple, standard fear, a terror we dealt with in the few ways open to us, from not thinking about it to going crazy from it. Pynchon himself chose a masochistic option. He assumed a pose of somber glee at any idea of mass destruction or decline. Others, perhaps stupefied by the thought of annihilation, did not respond and continued as if nothing had changed. Meanwhile, a young woman in a psychiatric hospital told R.D. Lang that she was terrified that the bomb was inside her. Our shared nightmare had rewritten her mind and being at the atomic level. Perhaps she was the least mad of them all. The bomb's threat was totalizing, after all. As a spectre of the future, a fiction that was nothing and nowhere, the bomb haunted everything and everywhere. On the day of reckoning, Arundhati Roy wrote, The devastation will be indiscriminate. The bomb isn't in your backyard, it's in your body and mine. After the bomb, every cell of the body could only exist because the thought of its destruction loomed on time's horizon, violating the boundary between being and nothingness. The bomb entered our bodies in every way imaginable, through sight and image, sound and silence. For children, the education system played a vital role. Government-mandated duck-and-cover drills became a regular fixture of school life. During a lesson, a bell would ring and teachers would tell children to hide under their desks or crouch in their corridors. The idea was to protect the children, to shield their eyes, their ears, their bodies against any nuclear blasts close enough to harm them, but too far away to destroy them. The pragmatic value of these drills was debatable. Some have since argued that they were a means of reassuring the population that the government had a plan in the event of nuclear war, that the authorities were not powerless against death. In a way, the drills were an instrument of mass hope. Their purpose was spiritual. Yet as the children crouched with their hands over their faces, collapsed into the fetal position or lay prostrate on the floor. Many instead learned the opposite. They realized that nothing and nowhere was safe. That death could fall from the sky at any instant, erasing them and the ground they lived on in a blast of light. 
far from being a lesson in survival, the drills attained an almost religious, mythical significance. A mass for the 20th century. As the drills interrupted the children's morning prayers, science classes and civics lessons, they impressed a negative hope, a deep anxiety upon them. They showed that blunt power now ruled the world, that a religion of terror could thwart the love of God or country or humanity, that war could no longer be fought in the name of life, but only for something beyond life. Death, nothingness. Shadowed by the god of groundlessness, by the thought of total annihilation, a fear of the bomb, of a destruction that did not and may never exist, soon took precedence above all else. Written in the air, in the black ink that nobody could see but nobody could forget, was the myth of the 20th century. That's the end of episode three. Thanks so much for listening, and please subscribe on Spotify and Substack to listen to our next episode and to read our future posts.